Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Dr. Katani. Hello, Cam. Hello. Now, on the way this week, we've got an end to sticky chewing gum because scientists have invented a recipe for washable gum. Also, mobile phones and the oral contraceptive are both getting a clean bill of health from a health perspective this week. And also, researchers have pinpointed the genes that are linked to making lonely people feel ill. Plus, we're also trying to solve this ornithological conundrum. The different birds always seem to know what they are. They don't get confused. The budgies don't try and mate with the canaries and the finches don't shack up with the canaries. How on earth do cuckoos go off and spend a life as a cuckoo behaving like a cuckoo and finding another cuckoo to mate with? Indeed, how does a cuckoo know that it's a cuckoo? We're going to find out later in the programme. And also, we're stepping back in time to meet the people that are bringing the plague back to life in York. The plague, I believe, is punishment for the sins of the people of this city. This is it's a very rich city full of uh, very idle fellows who spend their time carousing and drinking in the taverns and gambling down great lanes. What about in the 17th century, Jane? <laughs> in the 17th century, it would have been pretty much the same. <laughs> and in Kitchen Science, we will be revealing why, contrary to what you might believe, David Beckham and Wayne Rooney are actually expert physicists. Hmm. We will be showing you how to bend it like Beckham in our Kitchen Science. Plus, we'll be finding out why some fish glow green in your fridge, it turns out. And if you've got any other scientific questions you'd like us to solve for you, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at UKFast. So, Chris, what have you had your eye on this week? Well, uh, as I was walking along and I didn't get chewing gum stuck on my foot, I'm pleased to say today, it reminded me of something which I saw this week at the BA Festival of Science in York, which was, I think, deserves prize for invention of the year, actually. It's a piece of work by Terry Cosgrove. He's a researcher at Bristol University, and he's come up with the recipe for chewing gum that does not stick to things. This sounds absolutely brilliant. Tell me more. Well, it's washable chewing gum in the sense that if you look at normal chewing gum, it's full of these things called hydrophobic groups. They're water-repelling, so water can't get into the chewing gum molecules and take them to pieces, which is why you can't wash chewing gum off. And also, because some of the molecules are sticky, once they're latched onto something, it's very difficult to remove. You need things like petrol to dissolve it. So he and his team at Bristol decided to tweak the recipe for chewing gum a bit and they've added to the mix some polymers that they've made up which are actually also used in other human foods and things so they're safe. And they are water-loving, they're hydrophilic which means when you mix them in with the chewing gum it means water molecules can get into the matrix of the gum when it's stuck on something and 
pull apart the polymers and the chewing gum effectively dissolves. So it won't, you won't get these black blotches on pavements. You won't have problems with your clothes and shoes being covered in this stuff in future. But can you still chew it? All right. I mean, will it break down in your mouth? Thankfully not. It, uh, it will actually melt on the pavement, but it takes a little while to do it. So it, it won't uh, apparently affect the enjoyment or the taste experience. In fact, it might even make the flavour stronger at the same time because, it, because it's water-loving, these molecules. It can sharpen up the flavour of some of the taste molecules they add to the gum. Oh, so unless you're going to chew it for months, then uh, it's probably all right. So uh, we should see that actually in the shops by next year because they're, they're talking about having this on shelves by 2008. That sounds great. Anyway, sometimes it can seem like the news is full of scare stories about cancer. Um, But this week's actually seen two big pieces of research that could be seen as positively good news. So um, for the start, six years of research have found that there's actually no link between mobile phones and brain cancer or brain function, at least in the short term. So um, this adds to a number of other studies that have been done that have found no link between mobiles and cancer. Now, although we still don't know for sure if long-term use of mobile phones, so that's more than 10 years, Uh, could have an adverse effect on our health. The new study does support at least the other evidence we have that mobiles are safe. And the other thing is at the moment scientists can't actually find an explanation as to how radio waves which are produced by mobiles and masts might actually cause cancer because the energy of the radio waves isn't enough to damage our DNA which is the root cause of cancers. Do you think we've been looking at them for long enough though Kat? Because we've only got say 10 years, 15 years experience of using mobile phones and exposure to that radiation. And we know that certain things like, say, smoking, take a lifetime of exposure before you actually get cancer. Exactly. So there's still a need to carry on with long-term studies looking at this. But one of the key things is that we certainly can't find the biological mechanism for how they might work because, as I just said, the, the radiation isn't enough to cause damage. So if it is damaging us, it's doing it in an entirely new biological way that we don't yet know about. And the other good news uh, is this week for women who take the contraceptive pill. And uh, data from 46,000 women collected over 36 years has shown that taking the pill for less than eight years doesn't increase your long-term risk of cancer and may actually cut it for certain types of cancer, so as ovarian womb and bowel cancer and um but the the slight downside is is that this research found that if women take the pill for longer than eight years you might actually have a slightly increased risk of certain types of cancer what about breast cancer for example because that one's often touted as a risk factor Now, this is really interesting because this study was a long-term study, so looking at women who took the pill years ago and following them many years into the future. If you're actually taking the pill right now, your risk of breast cancer is increased. But mostly it's younger women who take the pill when your risk of breast cancer is very low, so the increase will still be relatively small. Um, But actually, if they looked in the long term, they didn't find any difference in breast cancer risk. So actually, in the long term, you're not increasing your risk of breast cancer. What about things like DVT, economy class syndrome, because doesn't the pill increase the risk of blood clotting? Yeah, there's there's still those kind of side effects of the pill to think about. This study was just looking at cancer risk. Um, So there have been other studies that have found uh, an increased risk of clots and stuff like that. So if you take the pill, you're probably best off, you know, trying to keep healthy and avoiding smoking and things like that as well to keep your blood and circulation healthy. I suppose that'll still be reassuring for a lot of people who perhaps were worried. Exactly, and and certainly it's showing that if you take the pill, at least in the short term, it's not going to do you any harm and may actually do you some good. Now, totally different subject, which is cool it. Um, you could say that. Man. I'm, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> telling you to chill out or anything, but there's a really interesting piece of research which has been done by Bill Miller and his team at Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee because it's a travesty at this time in the world's history where we're spending enormous amounts of energy trying to keep buildings cool 
with air conditioning and that kind of thing, it can cost an absolute bomb because we put so much electricity and so much other, so much other in the, things in the way of technical gadgets and things in buildings that they pump out enormous amounts of heat and then you have to try and remove these things. It's not very environmental as well, really, well, when really, air conditioning it's, it's all the time. It's terrifically bad. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We, half the time we spend trying to keep places warm other times we spend trying to cool them down again and homes and domestic use of air conditioning especially in hot countries like australia and the states is a big problem wouldn't it be better if you could stop the heat getting into the house in the first place and that's where they've approached this problem because they've developed a series of inventions that can keep a lot of the heat out and most of the heat that goes into a house comes in through the roof because that presents a big surface area to the sun like a giant solar panel and soaks up energy so what they've done is come up with this four-layered system which should keep the houses in hot places and perhaps even in this country in the future, a little bit cooler. How does it work then? Well, what they've got is three layers which are largely related around how the tiles are positioned on the roof. So they've got a reflective system which beams a lot of the infrared energy straight back off into into space where it came from. So that helps to reflect a lot of the heat and stop it going into the tiles in the first place. They've also got a modified system of tiles which encourages warm air to circulate out of the loft space and back out into the air. So that stops the air actually heating up in the loft space and getting into the house. Below that is another reflective layer. So if any, any energy does actually seep through the tiles it still gets beamed back out and then there's a fourth line of defense which i think is really ingenious what it is is sheets of a material sealed material like a sandwich which has got a chemical in it that melts from a solid into a liquid of course when the temperature is 23 degrees celsius or more now this is really interesting because when something melts like that it doesn't let the temperature change until it's all melted in the same way as when you put an ice ice cube tray in your freezer then if you put a thermometer in the water and you see it beginning to freeze, the water will remain at 0 degrees C until all the ice, until all the water has turned into ice and then the temperature begins to drop. So in the same way, this stuff soaks up energy like a giant energy sponge, turning it all into a liquid during the daytime, but not getting any hotter, which helps to soak up all the excess heat. And then at night time, when the temperature drops again, it turns back into a solid and re-radiates or re-releases all that heat back out through the roof because that's where all your reflective system is. And this cools things down. And just looking at the stats, um, Bill Miller says this could cut uh, aircon bills for houses by 8 to 10%. So that could make a big saving in terms of energy cost to a home. And he says they can intercept 90% of the heat energy that would normally penetrate through the living space and through your attic floor and into your house. So houses on average with this system working will be five degrees cooler on a hot day. I think they should also use more solar panels as well. If it's going to be that hot, I think it's an opportunity wasted. Anyway, on a completely different tack, um, we're looking at the fact that although exercise is recommended for people who are rehabilitating from heart attacks, new research is suggesting that if you're going to do it, you probably want to try and steer clear of busy roads while you're doing it. And that's not just because you might get run over, but because actually it might not be very good for your heart. Now, scientists at the University of Edinburgh and Umea University in Sweden have been measuring the effects of diesel exhaust fumes on heart and blood vessel function in 20 men who'd previously had a heart attack. And each chap was put on an exercise bike told pedal you mister pedal and given either clean or polluted air to breathe and the team found that breathing in fumes caused changes in the heart's electrical activity so this suggests that air pollution actually reduces the amount of oxygen that can get to your heart during exercise when you might really need it and also they found that um, your body's ability to make a a protein called TPA which prevents blood clots is actually reduced um, following exposure to these fumes so this does explain why previous studies have found that patients with heart disease are actually more likely to go into hospital on days 
on which air pollution levels are really high. And it also shows that as well as affecting your lungs, traffic fumes could actually be having a major effect on our hearts too. And particularly diesel fumes, because they produce lots of these little particles, these particulates. And, um, and if this research gets backed up in a, a bigger way, it might be a good case for, for having filters or something like that. Or, or better uh, emission control rules because we've known for a long time that when pollution's bad there is a big surge in heart attacks and strokes and it seems to coincide with blood getting stickier so people think those little particles you're talking about can get across the linings of the lungs and into the bloodstream and there and there when they're in there affect how the sticky parts of the blood your platelets and clotting system actually works and maybe turn turns the thermostat up if you like and makes it more likely to to stick exactly because they found that you're you stop making this you don't make as much of this TPA protein. Um, But the medical director of the British Heart Foundation commented on this and he said that actually, you know, don't, don't use this as an excuse not to go out and, and get your exercise. Because <laughs> I can't go out the air, too bad. Yeah, because they, they would still encourage heart patients to exercise regularly. But, you know, think preferably not when there's a lot of traffic around and you can look out for pollution levels on your local weather forecast. One so. wonders what's going to happen in Beijing next year at the Olympics where the air up until recently was breathable only on 282 days of the year, even by Chinese standards. <laughs> so they're all going to come Not many out. Olympic records going to be set there if they don't sort that out. But st- on the subjects of hearts and things, there was a big study in the Americas long while ago, about 20 years ago, Framium Heart Study and the Alameda County Studies, one of these big epidemiological trials where you just enrol huge numbers of people from the local population and follow them for a very long time. And you see how different aspects of their lifestyle affect their outcome, their health outcome. And one of the things that's cropped up time and time again is that people who have a big social network live longer. And the kinds of things that made people live longer in their study were going to church, praying, um, what for Hallelujah. Say. Uh, but also playing musical instruments singing in a choir all these things you think well how can that possibly affect my health and it turns out that uh, loneliness seems to have a very profound impact on the expression of certain genes in your white blood cells and therefore possibly in other tissues as well there's a piece of research been done by a guy called steve cole who's based in, in america and they recruited a small number of patients just 14 volunteers about half of whom scored very very highly they were very unlonely had lots of friends about 15% um, of the, they were in the top 15% of what's called the UCLA Loneliness League, if you like. It's, it's a questionnaire you fill in to work out how lonely you are. Are you a Billy No and Mates? The other not? half of them, yeah, we're, we're in the bottom 15%. So there was a strong contrast. And they took, they took blood samples from these people and compared which genes were on and which genes were switched off. And they found 209 genes were consistently different in the two groups. Uh, about uh, 30, what was it, about, about 90 of those genes were consistently turned up and the other 230 or so were turned down 130 were turned down and what they think is these genes are therefore probably something to do with why people who are very very lonely have higher levels of inflammation and a higher tendency to get things like heart disease and strokes that's interesting with relation to cancer as well because increasingly it's becoming clear that cancer at least some types of cancer may be linked to the immune system and inflammation as well so that that's certainly really interesting stuff well they're saying that you could use it for intervention because if you give someone some therapy or something to make them feel happier less depressed and more outgoing and, and go out and socialise with their friends, you can find out if it's actually working because you can monitor and see if these genes have reverted back to the profile for healthier people who, who don't have these risks. And does it count if you've got real friends or if they're just on MySpace? Well, actually, they do look at that kind of thing because they say it's not just how many people you know, it's how long you've known them and how well you feel, how strongly attached to them you feel. So they've got to be good, proper friends to make a big so difference. So maybe not my MySpace friends. Your Facebook friends are out of the picture, I'm afraid, Kat. Oh. It is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Kat. We're taking your science questions if you'd like us to answer them for you. Email us. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. 
Anyway, we are um, talking about some of your questions that people have sent in. And we have a question here uh, that's from Freddy van der Eich. Um, not sure where he is, Belgian maybe. Um, but he says, last week I brought some fresh fish from the marketplace and it was cod. And he said, as this fi- fridge didn't have a light bulb inside, in the, in the night, when well, I don't know what he was doing looking in his fridge in the night, uh, he looked at the fish lying in the fridge and it was glowing bluish green. Now he knows that he lives roughly 20 kilometres from a nuclear power plant, so he got really scared and threw his fish in the bin uh, or back into the river. So he's wondering, um, is this fish contaminated? Is it a radioactive fish? like in the films um, or is there something else going on Chris what do you reckon well last week uh, we speculated Dave and I that this could be something to do with organisms that are in the in the water which have got into the fish which have the ability to make light but we didn't know precisely what they were and we said does anyone have any clues and Thankfully, Elizabeth Winkler, who uh, is from Australia, and she says she's a, a dietitian and a nutritionist, has written back. And she said, I listen to your show online here in, in Australia. I love it very much. Um, this item caught my attention because there are certain non-pathogenic bacteria which grow in seafood and then they emit light in the dark. And she sent me the link to a report by the FDA in America. So it's not nuclear nuclear. No, 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 absolutely not. Because as Dave pointed out, if you had a fish that was that radioactive, A, the fish would have 15 eyes and six legs, and B, it would have killed you long before you managed to get it to the fridge. So it had to be something else that was going on. And also, why, why would it suddenly start glowing later if it wasn't actually the radiation? So if it was radiation, it would have been glowing all the time, sorry. So anyway, I looked at this report from the FDA, and it's really interesting. Um, they have got lots of reports here of people having this phenomenon going on. It turns out there are various bacteria, and they're all of the photobacterium species. And one very common one is photobacterium phosphoreum, and they use an enzyme called luciferase, which is a light-producing ah, enzyme. It can break yes. down various products in cells and couple them with an energy molecule called ATP and produces light, bioluminescence. So that's what's going on. There's another kind of uh, organism can do it, Vibrio, which is in the same family as cholera, but thankfully this one's not harmful. But the key thing is these bacteria can grow at low temperature. They'll grow at, at four degrees, which is obviously oh, fridge temperature, which is why it. they grew in this fish as it was stored in the fridge. But they're not harmless then? They're not harmless. Uh, not harmful? <laughs> no, no, they're not supposed to be harmful. They're not supposed day. to be harmful. Okay. So yes, it would be safe to eat your fish if it was glowing. Excellent. Intriguing. I'd like to see that though. So, if it, But don't that send would, me any samples, please. No one cool. send me that. That would be nasty. Send Chris Fish in the post. Go on. Uh, anyway, we have another question here from Douglas in Southend-on-Sea. And he says, if you look at a phone, so a mobile phone or a, a, a touch touchpad phone, the numbers go from one to nine from the top to the bottom. But if you look on a computer or another sort of number touchpad, they go from the bottom to the top. Now, why is this? And we've got a couple of interesting answers on this. Yeah, why we do weren't you think sure. This we, is, we mentioned this last week and we said we haven't got a clue. Uh, it must be something to do with just some kind of convention someone dreamed up. Um, Joshua is in California. He listened to us online and said... Um, There are a variety of answers. Here's one. It seems that the computer keypad is a copy of the calculator keypad with 1, 2, 3 on the bottom and 7, 8, 9 along the top. The calculator keypad was around long before the touchtone telephone. When they designed the telephone keypad, they had to take into consideration that there are letters associated with the numbers, like A, B, C is on the one button, for example. So to keep the letters in the top to bottom order in which we read them, they put the 1, 2, 3 on the top and the 7, 8, 9 on the bottom. That's his theory. And we've got another answer here from Larry Barnett, who's in the US, and he says that his father manufactured the first commercially successful um, telephone answering machine available in the States. 
And uh, it turns out that the early prototypes for the touchtone phones had the numbers arranged like everything else. But this would include things like adding machines. And there were lots and lots of people who were very good at using adding machines who were very quick. And they were actually quicker at pressing the numbers into the phone than the phone could cope with. So the sort of the tone to pulse conversion that, that's going on in the phone. And so what the engineers did is just reverse the numbers so people had to think a little bit more about pressing them in. So everyone had to slow down and that's why the phone's the other way around. I think I like that answer. That sounds sounds plausible. It, it sounds good. I think both of them have probably got a lot of reason to them. But uh, yeah, this one's certainly very interesting. Well, there we are. We're sorting out our problems here on The Naked Scientist, which is good to hear. If you've got a question for us, uh, you can email it in, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Got one here from John. Uh, he's emailed in for you, Kat, and says, why do humans have pubic hair? Do other animals have it? What's his, what's his point? What's the function of it? Well, we've had a, we've had a little chat about this, um, and I reckon it's probably got a few functions. So obviously one is to protect your bits, I should think. Um, from... How thick is your pubic hair? I mean, I'm not being funny, but is it protecting your armpit well? Well, you don't have pubic hair in your armpits, Chris. How big's yours? Well, That's it's your still, armpit yeah, hair. Yeah, but it's still pubic hair. It's still well, pubic hair. I'd call it armpit hair. Okay, it's still pubic um, hair. But yeah, I think... I wouldn't rely... Even if we were referring to downstairs, I wouldn't rely on mine to protect my bits. <laughs> but I think probably partly um, the purpose is, is probably to trap things like, like sweat and, and pheromones and stuff like that, because... Actually, humans are probably meant to be a bit smelly because it's meant to be attractive to the opposite sex and uh, sort of leave your scent around the place. So it's probably evolved to help us trap our, our pheromones and our smell. So you've got in those a really areas. big sort of surface area with all this hair. It soaks up the local secretions, yeah, including pheromones, and, so wicks it out. Which, and acts as a wick, so that then I come along and sniff up your odour. And I fancy you. I find me devastatingly attractive because my armpits smell, yeah. <laughs> well, let's hope that that is true. Anyway, it's The Naked Scientist with Chris and Kat, and uh, we have been this week at the BA Festival of Science at the University of York. And uh, as well as cutting-edge science, one of the things that they were exploring in York was a look back on the history of science. And this, so I caught up with Sabine Clark and John Sumner for a chat about 17th century disease control. We've been running an event here, and it's based on a real... Thing that happened in 1631 where there was an epidemic of plague in York. So when you say an epidemic, how big, how many people were involved? Well, it wasn't in fact one of the worst epidemics which ever affected York, but it was a time where some very draconian measures were introduced to control the plague. And what the City Council of the Aldermen did at this period was institute a policy of boarding up the sick and affected in their own homes. So crikey, what would have happened to those people then? Well, in fact, guards would stand outside their houses and place boards across their doors and their windows. And while they would pass the inhabitants of the house some food, they basically waited really until everyone was dead. It was a way of stopping the plague from spreading. But that was quite prescient, really, of them to realise that you could control a disease like that, wasn't it? Well, certainly by 1631, York had had numerous epidemics of plague. And over the years, of course, people had learnt of the best way to deal with these sorts of epidemics. Which was to confine people. Yes, in fact, other policies, such as building pest houses or hospitals, would have been very expensive. And boarding up people, of course, was effective and relatively cheap. And in an average city like York in the 1600s, if plague came to town, how many people wouldn't come off so well? About a third of the population could probably be dead by the end of the plague period. So it could be an extremely serious disease. Now, James, you're dressed as a priest, so is it your job to bury these poor victims? Amongst other things, yes. I should explain. My name is Parson Grimsworth. I am the parson of the parish of St Cuthbert's in York, where there's been a severe outbreak of the plague. And apart from burying people, what else would you have had to do as the parish parson? I would have gone among them, uh, ministering to them, and praying for the salvation of the people of the city of York. The 
plague, I believe, is punishment for the sins of the people of this city. This is it's a very rich city full of uh, very idle fellows who spend their time carousing and drinking in the taverns and gambling down great blames. Yeah, what about in the 17th century, Jane? <laughs> in the 17th century, it would have been pretty much the same. So, sort of stepping out of role for a minute, what do you normally do for a living? I'm working on a project on the history of integrated software in Europe, so it's a bit of a step backwards for me. Why do you do this? Uh, this comes out of work with the British Society for the History of Science. All of us involved with this project work with the Society as part of its work in educational outreach. It's useful to be able to develop these things, which appeal to children much more immediately than the kind of static lecture presentation would. And Sabine, has it been well received? Well, absolutely. The um, children we saw this morning were superb, and they were in role as part of our production. They were city aldermen, and they were able to ask a number of characters like our parson and also a doctor some questions. And then at the end of our event, they had to make the decision about how to control plague in York. Well, that sounds nasty. I hope you didn't come back with any nasty infections, Chris. Thankfully, they weren't infectious. <laughs> well, that was Sabina Clark uh, from Oxford University and James Summer from Manchester University taking time out from their normal lives to experience the 17th century. Well, back to the 21st century now. It is The Naked Scientist with Chris and Kat. And if you have any science questions for us or anything uh, you'd like us to tackle here on this week's programme, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Well, being addicted to something is usually bad news, but now there's evidence that getting hooked on chocolate may not be such a bad thing. Yes! Uh, Just so long as it's the dark variety. Well, that said, uh, is chocolate really addictive? I reckon it is. But to find out, earlier this week, Chris met up with antioxidant expert Roger Corder and addiction specialist Peter Rogers. So, Roger, what's the grounds for thinking that just like the chocolate manufacturers would love us to think that chocolate is actually good for us? Well, essentially a number of population studies have shown that there's a lower risk of heart disease in people who eat chocolate regularly. And although this is a a rather surprising finding, uh, a number of research groups over the past 10 years or so have been looking at how this may be explained, what are the effects on blood vessel function that may be protective. And we've done our own research in this area and show that the, the, the potent effects modifying the function of endothelial cells, which are the cells that line, line blood pressure, uh, line blood vessels. And these effects could, could definitely um, be associated with a reduced risk of heart disease. That exactly the same sort of molecules we're looking at when we study red wine. And there's so much similarity between the effects we're observing and the molecules that we're studying that there's a parallel between consumers of, of high, highly tannic red wine and those who like to eat, eat dark chocolate in terms of the effects that are observed. So it's got to be the dark chocolate? Absolutely. It's dark chocolate and no other choice. The, the, for, cocoa as a drink may be an alternative, but milk chocolate, white chocolate, th- these are... Uh, these have n- no, virtually no flavonoids in, none of these protective polyphenols, and therefore there's, there's no scope for health benefits through con- consuming these, these products. A lot of people criticise people who say, oh, drink red wine because it's good for you, because they say you couldn't possibly eat enough or drink enough to have a health-promoting effect. Is that true with chocolate? You can actually eat enough to make a difference? I, th- I think we're, we're at an early stage in defining what are the best chocolates to have. And there's certainly some out there that are high cocoa, polyphe- uh, uh, cocoa solids levels with polyphenol levels which you, you would say are consistent with the beneficial effects that are observed. And so if you're talking about sort of 75 to 85% chocolates, yes, there are some. But we, we need to have labelling of, of flavonoid levels on chocolate so that people can identify exactly what the best ones are. And that's coming, I'm sure. 
And talking to you, Peter, um, a lot of people say, I am addicted to chocolate. Now, it sounds to me from what Roger's saying, like it'd be quite good to be addicted to chocolate if it's going to make me live longer. Well, possibly, although the other good news really about chocolate is it's not very addictive. In fact, I'd say it's hardly addictive at all. We feel addicted sometimes, but we think that's because we rather struggle with this food. The, the way to sum it up um, very succinctly, I think, is to think of chocolate as, as nice but, but naughty. We have conflicting attitudes about this food. Um, we like its taste, its its flavour, its its texture, but it's uh, also food we need to eat with restraint for actually a, a variety of reasons we actually have in our head that it's an unhealthy food. Eating a lot of chocolate is indulgent. And that negative attitude is balanced against the, 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 the nice part of it. And um, trying to resist a desire for nice things is, is difficult. Um, and actually saying, well, I'm not going to eat chocolate because it might make me fat, um, it doesn't make the thought of chocolate go away. Actually, it makes it... Um, more intense, if anything, and when we think about it more, we elaborate that that thought, and that f- is a sort of feeling that we we then label as a, a craving, and craving then brings to mind the idea of addiction. Um, so these things get get linked in our heads together. Are there any chemicals in chocolate, if you analyse it, which which could conceivably be addictive? Well, this is, this is one claim that what's special about chocolate is that it contains. Um, compounds, uh, chemicals, uh, that have psychoactive effects, mood-elevating effects. And this is why we like it, crave it, and perhaps even are addicted to it. Actually, the evidence for that is is pretty weak. Our own studies um, uh, show that, where we've tested that I- idea um, directly. We don't find that the that cocoa um, solids, the, the key component um, containing these psychoactive um, uh, uh, chemicals or potentially psychoactive chemicals actually really gives much of a, a mood lift beyond a bit of a caffeine buzz and we could get probably get a stronger buzz from a cup of coffee uh, so it doesn't do any more on that so we don't think that plays a role at all what about this idea that women say i crave chocolate at certain stages of my menstrual cycle the day 14 when i'm about to ovulate or just before i'm about to to menstruate well, again, we think that has more to do with our attitudes to chocolate and how we use this food than, than our, our biology. So, so one thought here is if, if our biology puts us in a bad mood, perhaps we feel it's legitimate to indulge in eating chocolate. That will help cheer, cheer us up. But we don't think there's anything um, special um, biologically about chocolate that, that, that gets rid of that, that bad mood other than it's just pleasurable to eat. So, Roger, the best combo, then, is some red wine and a bar of chocolate. Absolutely. Although, actually, I prefer chocolate and coffee in the morning and a glass of wine in the evening. (laughs) But isn't coffee bad for you? Uh, uh, There's lots of evidence that show that routine coffee consumption decreases your risk of diabetes. So to say it's bad is, is, is not really based on the evidence out there from population studies. So how much chocolate would I need to be eating on a daily basis in order to, to get the benefits? Of a very uh, flavonoid, polyphenol-rich chocolate, about 30 grams would be a, a good choice. And once you start exceeding that, then, then you've got the, the problems of consuming excess calories. So we really need to have a, a good choice for consumers of high polyphenol chocolates, well-labeled, that p- people will recognize. So there you have it. Chocolate is not addictive, but it is very good for you as long as you eat the dark stuff. 30 grams a day and combine it with a glass of very nice red wine from the southwest of France, Roger tells me, is the best place. And you should be set to live to, what, 200? Something like that. (laughs)
That sounds brilliant. I shall be going home and having some red wine. Not you, you should live to be 5,000 years old then. Well, I don't eat that much chocolate. I do like dark chocolate though, so I feel vindicated. Well, that was Roger Corder from St Bart's and the Royal London Medical School and Bristol University's Peter Rogers speaking to Chris earlier this week at the BA Festival of Science in York. Got an here from Brendan Finlay. He's listening in America and in fact in New York City. He says, love your show. I listen to the podcast on the subway and I always have people stare at me because I'm usually laughing and uh, I like your show. It's very educational and also fun and entertaining. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Mm-hmm. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. You are listening to The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Cat. Now, I've got a question here for you, Chris, which is from Andy Amor in Hampshire. And he says, in the loos, well, gents loos and as ladies as far as he knows, have you been in the ladies, Andy? <laughs> uh, there are often hot air hand dryers, and these are the automatic type that you put your hands under them and they go on and they switch off when you take your hands away and still have to wipe them down the back of your trousers. Um, so how does the hand dryer know when to switch on and when to switch off? Okay, it's got a proximity sensor and if you look underneath... Uh, I don't make a habit of doing this, but if you if you look underneath the thing, and this is from my student days when I couldn't afford a hairdryer, so you go to the McDonald's and use the McDry or whatever and you put your head in it, uh, if you look upwards, you'll see there's this sort of cell sitting there. There's usually a piece of glass or a, an area where there's it almost looks like a miniature window pane, of often dark material. And if you were to open that up and take a look, I'm not saying you should dismantle your hand dryer in the average toilet, that you may be done for vandalism, but if you look inside, you'll see there's a, a little emitter which usually sends out an infrared pulse. Next to it is a receiver for infrared. Now, the source is too weak for anything hitting the floor below the heater to bounce back and reach the receiver again. But when you put your hand in the way, the hand bounces the signal back off of it into the receiver, or it just picks up the infrared coming off warm hands anyway. It depends how it's set up. And it then detects there's something moving beneath the sensor triggers a switch which turns on the heater, and you dry your hands, and then when you take them away, it turns off again. That sounds very, very clever. Now, no, I'm just going to ask you this because this okay. is very interesting and uh, it's got something to do with sort of bugs and germs and things because uh, you, you use one of the chemicals I mentioned here, two of the chemicals, to clean things up. It's Dan. He says, um, I'm listening to your show by podcast uh, while I'm working in my lab and um, it's much better than just listening to the whir of our tissue culture hood. And I got thinking as I was doing this and I was wondering if bacteria are constantly evolving and developing resistance to things like different antibiotics, why don't they become resistant to things like soap and ethanol and bleach? I think it's because the drugs that we have um, work in a, a different way to, to bleach. Basically, bleach will kill everything, um, pretty much. Uh, whereas if you have drugs, the the resistance builds up because you someone has an infection, for example, and you treat them with antibiotics, and the antibiotics don't kill all the bugs because they have slight variations in their genes. And basically antibiotics work by affecting proteins in the bacteria. They're designed to affect specific proteins like in the cell walls or that make other proteins in the bugs. So with something like bleach, bleach is so utterly destructive, there's not really a way to build up resistance to it. Uh, and that's that's my thought. So these genes don't really get to spread through the population of bacteria. That'd be a bit like the, same the way population that of the world does. becoming resistant to a meteorite strike, wouldn't it? Because it's such a massive, devastating blow. Exactly. And there's no real... Bleach just nukes the whole thing, I think. But I think one other thing we could add to this um, point is that most antibiotics that we have 
actually come from nature. People don't realise this. They're, in fact, there's a, organisms that live in the soil naturally make most of the drugs we have, and, and all that scientists have done is to copy them. So bacteria have been locked into this arms race with other bacteria for millions of years. So bacteria have been seeing the other weapons that these bacteria have got to unleash on them, and slowly but surely developing resistance against them. But they're only there in the environment in low levels. But when we start using these drugs in big amounts against certain types of bacteria that affect humans, then there's this big sort of selective or evolutionary pressure for bugs that infect us to gain the ability to resist those things that, that we're throwing at them. So therefore you're going to breed more resistance. And also you're tipping these things down the drain into the sewers and stuff so that they're in low concentration and can just begin to stimulate bacteria to, that, that are not susceptible to them to begin to grow. Hence the big problem we have with things like MRSA. Here's an, another sort of buggy question. And uh, it's a question from Simon Waters. And he says, viruses... Are they any good? Um, are any of them actually good for us? Uh, for example, symbiotic things. So, for example, you have uh, cowpox can provide immunity to smallpox. So uh, are there any viruses that that actually do us any good? It's amazing to think that this might be true, in fact, because most people think, oh, virus makes you feel goddamn awful. Don't want any of those. But there's a recent piece of research been published in the journal Nature by a guy in the US called Skip Virgin. And what they found is that being infected with members of the family of viruses known as herpes viruses, so viruses that include herpes simplex that causes cold sores, also Epstein-Barr virus that causes glandular fever, and CMV, which causes a glandular fever-like illness. When they infected mice with the rodent equivalent of those infections, they found the mice had a much better immune system than mice that hadn't been infected before. And to prove this, they infected the mice after they'd been infected with these viruses with the bacteria that caused the plague. We've been looking at that earlier today. And also listeria, one of the bugs that grows in the fridge, soft cheeses, that kind of thing. We've been talking about fridge amplifying bacteria. There's another one. And these mice were 100% protected when they actually had these bacteria challenged against them, compared with animals that had never been infected with these herpes viruses. And when the researchers studied the mice, they found they made molecules called interferon gamma at a much higher level, which stimulates the immune system. And so what they think is going on is that your body, because we've been infected with herpes viruses for millions of years, what they think is going on is that the body has begun to rely on the virus going into you and providing additional gene functions which our body no longer has and this stimulates the immune system and we get some benefit from it so it's almost like a symbiosis we give the virus a home and it gives us a better immune system those pesky viruses may be good for something ah we've got uh, one more question here which is from nick lister and uh, this relates to something that I think is one of the most fascinating things in the world and I've always wanted to go and see them. He says he's a long-haul pilot for British Airways and he's seen the Aurora Borealis uh, quite a lot of times, the Northern Lights. And every time he's seen them, they're always green in colour, um, though it can vary. And he wants to know what causes it and why do you see it on some nights and not others? Well, the Aurora Borealis is because the Earth has a magnetic field. So when the sun, which is pumping out this million-mile-an-hour maelstrom called the cosmic wind of charged particles and ions, when that slams into our magnetic field, because charged particles are deflected by magnetic fields, the two interact and you get this release of energy and it stimulates molecules in the atmosphere to get excited. And of course the dominant molecules in our atmosphere are oxygen and nitrogen and oxygen's colour when it gets excited is mainly green. But some of the particles that come from the sun are at a much higher energy than the average ones. And so occasionally when you get these surges of very high energy particles, what happens then is that when they hit the Earth's magnetic field and the oxygen, they increase the activity of the oxygen a little bit more, give it a bit more energy, and you get other colours other than just green, which is why you sometimes see these other shimmering colours rather than just green. In terms of why you see it sometimes, why you see it not, it 
will depend, I think, to a certain extent on how much solar activity there is. I think it will also depend on atmospheric conditions. And if it's a cloudy night, obviously, you're not going to see it then. But I, I think that's about as far as I can get with that. And why is it only at the poles? Ah, well, that's because of the field lines, because there's a concentration, because Uh, the Earth's like a giant bar magnet, all of the field lines come in around the poles and point down towards the North Pole, so that channels all of the effect down, and so it's most concentrated there, so you see it most there. Well, it has, of course, been the BA Festival of Science up in York this week, and in a second we'll be joining Mira Synthalingham to find out some of the best bits of the festival, and we'll also be answering a cuckoo-related question, finding out how a cuckoo knows it's a cuckoo. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. You are listening to The Naked Scientists with Dr Chris and Dr Kat. And uh, this week's been the BA Festival of Science, as we said, and so we sent Mira Senthalingham out to find some of the highlights, and she discovered how automatic door technology can help people with disabilities discover their musical potential and also a way to immerse yourself in pure colour. But first, she spoke to John Dury from the University of Sussex, who's looked into the behaviour of people caught in the 2005 London bombings to try and understand the psychology behind crowd control and mass evacuation. I gathered data from 145 people, most of whom were actually caught up in the explosions. I was interested in whether their behaviour was selfish and competitive or cooperative because there's an assumption that people in emergencies tend to panic or if they don't panic, that they simply look after family members. So first of all, I looked at their behaviours, and I found that selfish and competitive behaviour was extremely rare. On the other hand, mutual help was extremely common. My second question was, who were they with? And as you might know, most of the people on those trains were commuters. Therefore, most of the people helping each other were with strangers. People were helping strangers. My third question then was to ask, well, what was the process behind this helping of strangers? And they contrasted this with the kind of experience which you have every day on the London Underground where people feel atomised. And so it was this sense of unity arising from the danger itself that brought people together that explained their helping behaviour. What were your overall conclusions from this? First of all, that the, the idea of panic is a myth. Secondly, that the authorities should make provision for people's willingness to provide help to each other. The public tend to be excluded from emergencies. And thirdly, that the authorities, rather than treating people as irrational and over-emotional, should try to give more information to the public on what's happening during emergencies. And you say that communication should be improved. Why should communication and how do you think it can be improved? Well, there is evidence, from not just from my study, from, but from other experimental studies, that when you give people more information about the nature of the danger, the location of the danger, people exit more effectively because the assumption is that the more information you give people, the more they panic. That's not actually true. So you should have tannoy systems in place which tell people the location and the nature of the danger so they can act upon it. Do you think we should all promote actually having contact with each other in normal circumstances? There is, there is some lesson about everyday life here as well because when you go on the tube, some of my people did draw a nice contrast between how people avoid each other's eyes and I think the authorities and those in control of public spaces can do something about this by addressing people increasingly in terms of their collective identity and in that way they can encourage more helping, cooperative and altruistic behaviour than we get in everyday life at the moment. (laughs) 
So that was music played purely by the use of sensors. I'm here with David, who's going to explain to me how that's possible. Hello, David. Hello. Yes, I've been working with uh, some children from the Applefield Special Needs School in York, and the idea of the project is that it gives access to children who won't normally get access to keyboards and so on for the reason of their disabilities, uh, and allows them to play music on the computer. The computer is a kind of software sampler, and then they control the playback with sensors. Now, these are things like infrared distance sensors. So it's the sort of thing that when you go into the supermarket, the doors open automatically. You know, there's something there that detects your movement. We've got distance sensors, we've got sensors which you can tilt and move around, and also pressure sensors. There was something that resembled a symbol, but the children just kind of kept their hands hovering over it, so that's a distance sensor, that's is the, it? That's the distance sensor, yeah. It sends out a little infrared beam, and then movement in front of it bounces back. The sensor detects the distance, and then there's software inside the computer that translates that into uh, control information for the sample playback. They can control the part of the sound that's playing back, and also the pitch of the sound. Well, I mean, that was a very impressive result, so I hope the children are happy. There's some definite future stars among them, I think. I've just arrived on Parliament Street, and glaring me in the face is a huge, multicoloured, multi-parved, inflated dome. So I've just come inside the dome, and... It's really quite surreal. There's paths going in quite a few directions and the colours are just really vibrant. All the paths are lined with kind of bright blue and bright red. I'm here with Paul, who's going to explain how they managed to get this effect. Hi, Paul. Hello. You said that it's uh, very vibrant in here. In fact, it is relatively dark in here compared to outside. The only light in here is from sunlight that comes through the plastic, is filtered into the structure. And red, green and blue are used specifically because they're the primary colours of light. So they're the colours that we pick up in our eyes. All the other colours that you see, by the way, are a combination of those three. While it's relatively dark in here, you're nevertheless getting more or less 100% of the red, blue and green from the sun, separated into those three. Um, And your eyes are at the same time dilated in order to receive more light because you're aware that it's actually fairly dark in here. So your eyes are adjusted to receive as much light as possible and you're still getting independently 100% of the three primaries, which is what gives it that effect of being very bright and vibrant. I've just managed to bump into Helen. Hello, Helen. Hello. This is all part of the BA Festival of Science. Did you know that was going on? I actually didn't know, no. I come into town and I find all these interesting things going on in town. And actually it's for something to be different as well because normally it's fruit and veg, flowers, you know, food, and see something to do with science is really, really interesting. Well, that's it from me. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the best of the fest. And that was our Naked Scientist, Mira Senthalingham, with her own personal highlight of the 2007 BA Festival of Science. So it's good to know that the very people who avoid your gaze and sort of be grumpy on your daily commute would actually rush to your aid in case of emergency. And this is the Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Kat. Got an email here from Randy Henderson, who says, just want to let you know I really appreciate your show. I download you and listen to you on the internet while I'm taking my daily walks up and down the hills of my neighbourhood. And thanks to the Naked Scientist, I'm now £20 lighter. Brilliant. Brilliant. So there's a lesson in that for everyone, isn't there? Now, this week's Question of the Week, time to join Diana O'Carroll, because birdwatchers and twitchers will probably find it very easy to identify a cuckoo. But in this week's Question of the Week, we're asking, we're asking, how does a cuckoo know that it's a cuckoo, given that, well, it hasn't spent a great deal of time with its parents? Hello and welcome to Question of the Week with me, Diana O'Carroll. This week we're twitching for self-identity. Hi, my name's Dick Hawkins. I'm calling from Napier in New Zealand. I've got a small aviary at home with several different species of birds in it and every so often when I have to add another one there because of natural losses, 
The different birds always seem to know what they are. They don't get confused. The budgies don't try and mate with the canaries and the finches don't shack up with the canaries. So I was wondering how they actually knew what they were and I assumed it was just from how they were brought up by the parents. It then did occur to me that how on earth do cuckoos manage? Because cuckoos being brought up by a foster parent of a totally different species eventually go off and spend a life as a cuckoo behaving like a cuckoo and finding another cuckoo to mate with. So how is it that cuckoos know they're supposed to woo other cuckoos rather than the same species as their adoptive parents? Here's the current thought on the matter. I'm Dr Karen Spencer and I'm a David Phillips Research Fellow at the University of Glasgow. The case of the cuckoos is a really interesting one because originally it was thought that they were pretty much impervious to this imprinting mechanism and they could ignore the visual and the acoustic and the social interactions with their foster parents and they just innately knew, genetically knew, who they were and they could just basically ignore all environmental inputs. Um, and recently that's been suggested that it isn't quite the case. There's still a lot of questions to be answered certainly in this, but there is some evidence that in some species, adult cuckoos visit the cuckoo chicks just before they're about to leave the nest. Now, this means that they can then obviously imprint on this adult cuckoo. But it still raises the question of whether they've actually got a genetic filter to stop them imprinting earlier on on their foster parents. Now, if you take... Um, a cuckoo chick away from any other cuckoos and put it in a nest and it grows up and it doesn't actually get this later input from a cuckoo. It does seem to be slightly confused about who it is. It doesn't necessarily imprint totally on um, the foster parent, but it does kind of have a few sort of social problems, shall we say, when you introduce it to another cuckoo. It seems this particular species only derives an incubator and food from its adoptive parents. The theory goes that the cuckoo's core simplicity is due to its being hardwired. Programming an entire culture with complicated calls might require a huge cuckoo brain. Now from Airborne Species, next week we'll be looking deep into the abyss. Hi, my name is George England. I'm a graduate student at Stanford University in the United States. Some animals, such as amphibians or seabirds, need to see above and below water. My question is, how do they do it? How do their eyes work in air and in water? And from looking through the briny deep to listening to it. I'm here from Canberra in Australia, and I've been wondering for a long time, why is it when you put a shell from the ocean up to your ear that it sounds like the ocean inside the shell? Do you have any thoughts as to how the big drink fits into a small shell, or how it's possible for a cormorant to see in the water and the air? Drop your questions and answers to me at questionoftheweek at thenakedscientist.com. That's all for now. Back to the studio. Thanks, Diana. So, do diving birds have vocals, and why are the sounds in the seashell sounds of the seashore? Do email us, questionoftheweek at thenakedscientist.com. I think you managed that very well, actually, Carl. I can see the guys over there, our producers, Ben and Petro, were grinning from ear to ear as you ran into that, and I could just see them hoping that there was going to be a few tangled words. Well, now we've got a fantastic experiment for you this week. We are going to show you how David Beckham uses applied physics to kick a killer corner. Hello and welcome to this week's Kitchen Science. Seeing as we've been at the BA Festival of Science in York all week, we thought we'd bring Kitchen Science to York. So we're going to demonstrate the way that David Beckham can curve a ball with my volunteers from the Archbishop Holgate School. Hi, I'm Hannah. Hi, I'm Charlie and I'm in Year 10 at Arches. So what do you think of the BA Festival of Science so far? It's been good so far. It's really interesting seeing what different scientific experiments you can do with just stuff around your house. And that sounds really good. Is there any particular bit of science that you're fond of? I'm particularly fond of biology because I'm interested in how the human body works. Fantastic. Now speaking of the human body, what would you think if I were to tell you that Wayne Rooney is actually an expert in physics? 
Yeah, right. <laughs> well, it's true, he is. And to explain why, we have Dave Ansell here. Hi, Dave. Good evening. So, how are you going to prove that Wayne Rooney, a man who looks a lot like a cartoon ogre, is actually a physics expert? We're going to need this as a tube out of the centre of a kitchen roll, a long piece of elastic, a couple of metres long, ideally sort of three or four millimetres wide, the sort of thing you get in a set of knickers. So, something you could buy in a sewing shop? Yeah, that sort of thing. Uh, a bit of tape and the kitchen table. Fantastic. So everyone should have these things at home, or if not, they can easily get them. Yeah, really easily. Well, let's get it set up in that case, Dave. We've got your table laid out here. What do we need to do? Well, the first thing you need to do is point the table at nothing that's going to get damaged if it gets hit by a flying toilet roll. Oh, so we're throwing things around today, are we, Dave? Yeah, that's the plan. So if you've got lots of ornaments in your kitchen, maybe you ought to take it outside. OK. Is anyone going to get hurt? No, it's perfectly fine. In fact, to prove it, I'm going to get Hannah and Charlie to set it up and do the whole experiment. Fantastic. Well, Hannah, if you could come over, Dave will show you what to do. The first thing we want you to do is to stretch the elastic out so it's about three-quarters of the length of the table and then tape it to the end of the table. OK. Do you need this stretching out as in under tension or just laying on the table? Just laying on the table. There we go. All done. Well, now we're basically going to build a kitchen roll catapult. So we're going to roll the elastic around the kitchen roll and stretch the elastic and then launch the kitchen roll down the corridor. Fantastic. Well, let's get that set up then. All right, then. So how am I going to roll the elastic round the loo roll? You want it coming in at the bottom of the loo roll, and it's best if you put the first turn on quite loose, so it's going to release easily when we launch it. You want to wrap it exactly in the centre of the kitchen roll, and then stretch it out to the end of the table and put another four or five turns on. OK. Do I need to tie the elastic on? No, you want it to release once it's launched. So you want to overlap the second turn over the top of the first turn so it holds it reasonably securely, but not too tight. So it's not actually tied on, it's just held on by the tension of the elastic? Yeah, that's right. I've put about four full rotations on it. And will this be enough tension, Dave? Yeah, somewhere between four and six. It slightly depends on the kind of elastic you're using. Do we need to have it really tight? You want it quite tight, but not so tight that it collapses the tube. OK, well, Charlie, would you mind getting ready to launch our tube? Hold it with just two fingers from one hand in the centre of the tube so you can release it really cleanly. OK, then. So now that we've got our uh, kitchen roll catapult set up, what do you think is going to happen? Well, it might fly to the end of the table, maybe a little bit further, but not much. OK, and what direction do you think it will go in? I think it will go straight down the corridor. Are we ready to launch? Yep, we're ready. OK, so can we do a countdown? Three, two, one, launch. It kind of spun around and didn't go very far. But which direction did it go in? It, f- it went forwards and then it kind of bent back on itself, so it came back towards us. Um, it went up in the air. So, Dave, normally a catapult would fire something straight forward. Why did this go up? Well, if the tube wasn't spinning, it would just go straight forward. There's air going past it, but the air will go symmetrically around it, so there's no- going to be no forces on the tube. So there's the same amount of air going either side, so it just goes straight forward through the air? That's right. If the tube is spinning, on one side the tube's spinning with the air which is going past it, and on the other side it's spinning against it. And the air sticks slightly better to the side where it's spinning with the air, and that's the top side, so it will stick for longer and end up moving downwards slightly. So the air overall will end up getting pushed downwards. So because the tube is spinning, it pushes the air downwards as it goes through, and it, the tube itself goes up in the air? Yeah, because as Newton said, uh, if you push something, it will push you straight back. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. If the tube pushes air downwards, the air will push the tube upwards, and it will fly. So what does this have to do with Wayne Rooney? 
if Wayne kicks the ball on the side very hard, it's going to end up spinning very fast. So it's a bit like having the tube, instead of horizontally, having it vertically. So now when the air hits the ball on one side, it's going to stick better than the other. So the air's going to end up going one way, so the ball's going to put, get pushed the other. And it's going to swerve into the net with any luck. And do you just see this in football? It's incredibly important in tennis as well. Because if you want to serve the ball really, really fast, you want to get it, keep it as low as possible. So what they do is actually put top spin on the ball, which tends to give it negative lift, which pushes the ball downwards so it can stay in the court even though they're hitting it ridiculously fast. So it's spinning in such a way to push air up as it goes past? Yeah. So do you think that proves that Wayne Rooney is an expert in physics? Mm-hmm. I suppose so. <laughs> Perhaps applied physics rather than theoretical? Probably. Well, thank you ever so much for coming on the show. It's been really good to have you here. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. That's it from Kitchen Science this week from the BA Festival of Science in York. Now back to more of the best bits of the festival. Well, who would have thought it that Rooney and Beckham were so good at physics? I would never have believed it myself. No, I'm sure uh, that needs further investigation. Yes, more email. work does need to be done. <laughs> uh, of the physical nature. Uh, I've got an email here from Chris Burgess for you, Cat. He says, uh, can you guys tell me whether antioxidants in foods and supplements really survive stomach acids? Is there any way to ensure they get into the bloodstream? Well, yes, they do. Um, and the answer is, if you look at something like vitamin C, vitamin C is actually ascorbic acid. So um, I think in theory, if it's in an acid environment, then it's not necessarily going to be broken down so much. I mean, we have, we need vitamins to be absorbed into our bodies. So not just the kind of ooh, trendy antioxidant regions, but to keep us healthy. So, you know, the body has evolved ways of absorbing these without them being damaged obviously if they were broken down then they wouldn't be much good to us yeah absolutely and also in small amounts too that's why they're vitamins because they're there and active only in tiny concentrations vital amines yeah yeah, you don't don't need very much of them to make a big difference so you don't really need huge amounts being absorbed and there is evidence that if you absorb huge amounts it might be bad for you exactly um got a quick question for you here um from ken in the uk he says what is fire why is it hot Okay, uh, fire is the burning products or vapours of a fuel. So whenever something burns, the first thing you have to do is to make it into a vapour, which you then mix with oxygen. So when you have fuel, say paraffin or diesel or something, it burns much better if it goes up a wick. And the reason for that is the heat from the flame can then make vapour come off of the wick and that then mix with, mixes with oxygen in the air and then you get a chemical reaction with the, carb- the hydrocarbons, which is the fuel, mixing with the oxygen and you get complete combustion. And so the flame that you see is just the hot gases and there are soot particles, little bits of carbon in there and they get heated up and they glow which is why a a flame from say paraffin is a yellow color or a candle for instance paraffin wax is a bright yellow color because there are soot particles getting heated and why is gas burning blue um well it burns much more cleanly so there are no there are no soot particles but if you know if you you notice if you turn the air hole so that the gas doesn't have much oxygen coming in then it burns much more yellow because there's incomplete combustion and you get a yellow flame brilliant Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Next time, we'll be venturing into the world of robots to find out how they can build better cars, how they sequence genomes, perform delicate operations better than doctors, and may even be venturing into battle on our behalf in the future. But can they be trusted? Well, we'll be finding out next time. But right now, thank you to our wonderful production team, Ben Valsler, Mira Senthalingham and Petro Minch. And if you can spare a few minutes and you are online, come and take a look at our science forum where there are people from all around the world talking tech. And I promise you, it's an anorak-free zone. 
which is just what you'd expect from the Naked Scientist, of course. That's at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great week and see you next time. Thank you.